Welcome to Getting Unschooled. I'm Christopher Lawley. Today we have the second half of my interview with Kalinda Klein. If you haven't had a chance to hear the first part of the interview, I highly recommend you pause here and go listen to Kalinda talk about the arc of her career and how it was interwoven with her personal journey of reconnecting with her community and finding her sense of identity. When I contacted Kalinda to let her know about the previous episode going live, she let me know that since we had recorded the interview, she had started her own podcast. I was so pleased to hear this. As I'm sure you'll agree, Kalinda speaks beautifully and from the heart, and is doing work that is essential to the healing of our society. We recorded our interview quite a while back in February 2020, before the pandemic hit this part of the world, so it's not surprising that Kalinda already has 20 episodes out. The podcast is called Anti-Racist Educator Reads and explores powerful books like The Skin I'm In by Desmond Cole and Unsettling Canada by Arthur Manuel. Approaching this work through books seems fitting as you will hear her talk about her love of books and some recommended reading during today's interview. I really admire her putting her passion out there and sharing it with the rest of us. Having difficult conversations around race, privilege, and other individual and collective systemic blind spots is super uncomfortable. Yet if we don't have them, there's no way the status quo will shift. As Kalinda pointed out in part one of our talk, systems are built to maintain themselves. On a personal note, while listening back to these episodes during editing, I couldn't help but notice how my voice betrayed my nervousness at the beginning of my talk with Kalinda. It brought me back to my preparation for the interview. I felt a huge pressure to quote-unquote get it right. I'm very aware of the trauma and re-traumatizing that has and continues to go on in the school system and society at large by the dominant white culture on racialized communities. I have people in my own family, my ancestors, who actively contributed to prejudices and policies that created and reinforced the systems that kept my family in a position of privilege and power and disenfranchised the communities of other folks, including Kalinda's. I can hear all that weighing on my voice at the beginning of our conversation, almost waiting for myself to trip up and say something inappropriate or ignorant. And at one point I did say something that Kalinda drew my attention to in the phrasing of one of my questions. All I can say is that she did it with such grace and compassion. What my convening and coaching mentor Tammy Nielsen referred to as calling in instead of calling out, that I was not only able to learn something and remedy it, but was able to largely drop the guardedness and self-consciousness that I was feeling. I'm very grateful to Kalinda for that experience. That exchange was cut from the episode because it was important to me to rephrase the question. But if you are interested in hearing this beautiful example of being called in, I've posted it publicly on my Patreon page. The link is in the episode description. But this episode isn't about me, it's about Kalinda and her journey. We'll hear about her connection with elders and knowledge keepers, the impact storytelling has had on her, and how she stays well and recharges while carrying the enormous weight of the vital work she does. I actually hesitated to even share these personal reflections because I'm very aware of the tendency white men have had for a long time of making everything about them, including the journeys and struggles of non-white folk. But I do want to make this podcast personal as well as sharing the stories of others. We're all in this big boat together as teachers, finding our way, working to have the impact we want to have on the world, often under very difficult circumstances. There is a huge sense of kinship for me that comes from that. So it's in that spirit that I'm sharing my own personal reflections in the hopes that I can contribute in some small way to the larger conversation about how we can get where we need to go. So for now, let's just enjoy the rest of Kalinda's story. 
can you bring up, I think you've mentioned a couple of times now, your connection with elders. And I'm wondering, obviously, what you've just described about holding on to those moments that remind you of the change that is actually occurring, help you to stay balanced and motivated. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about what you draw on from your community to help you stay healthy and motivated. Some of my closest friends are also Anishinaabe Clay, Indigenous women, and I use them as my sounding board when things aren't going quite right because they get it. And that's the thing that I love about having affinity groups that sometimes it makes people uncomfortable when different, whatever group you might feel you belong to that's on the margins somehow. But other people who have that experience, you don't have to set the stage when you spend time with them. Mm -hmm. You don't have to explain why you were feeling the way that you were feeling or, or why a certain situation. You just have to sometimes say one sentence and they know everything about exactly uh, how you're feeling and why. So that's been really essential for me to have some of those folks. And then from a bigger, you know, stepping outside of that, it's the spiritual side of being Nishinaabe and having elders and knowledge keepers and traditional people who are in my life and I spend some time in ceremony. That's really been key for me to spend that time. It gives me a chance to recharge and to get teachings. Even sometimes just sitting with elders and listening it might not be something of specific ceremony. It's just sitting and listening. There's so much knowledge that's being shared, I think, I had the chance to listen to Jim Dumas, who's a Anishinaabe elder who was sharing our creation story in the condensed version that only took two days <laughs> <laughs> of, of listening. And so much that I got out of having that opportunity to sit and listen in, in a way that I, I, I never had growing up because you learn so much from those stories. When you were talking about storytelling as being key, when we were speaking earlier, it's key for all of us. And I think sometimes we forget that. You know, Thomas King says that, all oh, we are a story. I'm thinking I don't have many opportunities where I sit with folks and I just listen to them tell stories for long periods of time, for short periods of time. I do, but not for long periods of time, like like two days. So it felt to me like I was in ceremony and I was just having that opportunity to listen to someone uh, who's in his 80s has seen so much change and have him tell us a story that's, that's always been our story that I knew snippets about. It was so profound and so healing for me. At the same time, I was working on something that I needed to make for a ceremony, and I'm not really crafty, even though I keep trying to learn, and I was making my own mukluks while I was listening to him. So I feel like now those teachings are now also in those mukluks that, that I made while I was listening. So, so those are sorts of opportunities that my work does afford me. 
those opportunities that are also for me. They're, they're things that I can take and I can spill out for Indigenous youth who are in our systems. I can figure out which parts of what was shared I can share out with non-Indigenous educators. And then there's the parts that are also for me. Wow. I mean, that sounds like a profound, completely immersive experience where you're not only recharging, but you're growing and healing and probably a million other things. Mm -hmm. It's quite beautiful because there are those sorts of opportunities. And that's what I've been trying to hold on to because there's also enormous stress that comes with the role. And that enormous stress is that I feel a responsibility to affect change as soon as possible. We have a crisis for many of our Indigenous youth in our systems that are, aren't helping them in the way that, that they need to help them. And I feel like, like I need to make sure that teachers are learning what they need to learn as soon as possible. And it's, that's on me and that I have to make those connections with Indigenous community partners. And then I still have to do, you know, the parts of my job that I don't like, working on policies and going to meetings. Yeah. Uh, those things that, that just are part of, of the job that, that I don't really like, but are necessary. And I understand why, you know, I'm thinking of one policy that we changed when the anti-smoking policy had to be changed because vaping became an issue in schools. That was a perfect opportunity then to also include something about exceptions for smudging. Mm -hmm. and, and so there are times where it's really important that I am sitting at those tables and in those meetings and working on policy because otherwise it doesn't change. And then what you're doing is relying on someone to say, oh, it's okay. We know that this is important. We know that personally that this is falls under the Ontario Human Rights Code Creed Accommodation Guidelines to make sure that we're offering this, uh, not to mention just being decent human beings, that it's something that's important that we do. Most people, that's okay, but sometimes that's not enough. And so it needs to be in policy. So then it's uh, a non-negotiable because that's what Western educated folks understand. Yeah. That's about figuring out how to how to use the language that, that they understand that will make sure that the needs and rights are, are for Indigenous peoples are met within the system. Yeah. Wow. That's a heavy load. <laughs> I mm -hmm. mean, it's beautiful work, but it, that sounds like a lot to carry day to day. Yeah, it's been sometimes really overwhelming. I have allowed myself as many times. I've been doing this job for seven years now. And I have allowed myself at many times to be uh, swept away by all of that, where I was working 70 plus hour weeks and not eating properly and not exercising at all and not having any downtime because there's always something that I can be doing. And I think that many people feel that way now, certainly as someone who started teaching before email, 
and and the fact that we have email now and people expect you to be always uh, available to respond to things in a very timely fashion so from being someone who who worked in in the system when we didn't have that and we didn't have cell phones so we weren't always available i can see the shift that i understand other folks feel as well and then i add on to that the moral responsibility that I feel as Anishinaabe Kwe to be doing that work for other Indigenous youth, then it can be really overwhelming. Yeah. Most recently, it's been the the biggest thing that's been helpful for me has been job action that we have. <laughs> so <laughs> I would never have thought that I'd say that. It's helped me get the perspective again. So that for us in Ontario just started in November. And now we're at the end of February. And so it's really helped me to carve out time for doing the things that I know feed me outside of ceremony, which feeds me and spending time with my close friends and family. I hadn't even been doing things like going for uh, long walks in the woods, which always feeds me. I hadn't even been doing that for a long time. So I've started doing that again. I did start reading again last year. I read 95 books last year, and that's sort of my escape for feeding myself too, where I'm not thinking about anything. I'm not including in those books that I read, ones that I'm reading specifically to guide me in my work. (laughs) Those books aren't included in the 95. The 95 are, are ones that just give me that opportunity to get outside of myself too, because it's really easy to fall into that. Yeah especially when you work in a job where you're the only person who does that. So you're a department of one. It's just me. It's super isolating. And not that that books aren't isolating, but it, it feels like it feels like you're not isolated. So when you're reading a really good book, it feels like you're part of whatever is going on there. Connecting outside to, you know, like connecting outside with the trees and with the water, that gets outside of yourself too less isolating yeah yeah we need time to be not just do it's only through the being that we can really understand the doing mm-hmm. it's hard to not do it's really hard to not do in this job because it feels like there's so much that needs to be done actually it doesn't feel like i know there's so much that needs to be done and yeah i feel like it's like time is ticking and and that it's so important to get as much information, as much of this work as possible. Though I do know intellectually, I know that when I'm rested, when I've taken a Sunday afternoon and just gone for a long walk and not done anything else, that when I come back to whatever it is I'm I'm working on, I'm better. I know that. It's also easy to fall into that. Well, I'll go for that walk when I get just one more thing done. And I think that many people fall into that. Mm-hmm. I've certainly been guilty of it, and I'm trying to be super mindful of that right now. Great. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that is clear from everyone's story, that uh, wellness is a practice. It's, a, it's a, a journey, and it's not a formula. I was wondering, as we wrap up, if you had anything from, I mean, you've shared a lot of your wisdom and insight today already, I wondered if you had any specific message for colleagues, either 
indigenous educators who are also trying to navigate this same system or teachers who want to commit to being allies or or just teachers in general? I think it would be great if everyone read Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. In that book, he talks about there being no such thing as things being race neutral. You're either anti-racist or you're supporting white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And maybe a follow-up to that could be Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. I think that those texts to set a framework of opening yourself up and making yourself vulnerable to make mistakes and and to to try and, and to and to know that every one of us is responsible. This isn't just on the backs of indigenous or racialized people to do this work. It's on on all of us. When I think of the systems and being frustrated many times with the nature of our systems, which are so colonial and capitalist, that it's not just Indigenous students that struggle within those systems. Mm-hmm. There are lots of students who are struggling. There are lots of staff who struggle. So how are we educating ourselves and being mindful of all of the actions that we take or don't take? And that just because you aren't doing something your, yourself that's problematic, if you're not standing up for someone else, then then you are part of that problem, you know, that whole bystander uh, effect. And, and so that would be a key message that I would hope that colleagues would consider looking at how do you educate yourself to have that really big picture and, and then do the work too. My friend uh, Debbie Donsky, I love her. She's a phenomenal ally and critical friend. And we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago on a webinar conversation with a number of panelists who are all racialized people, except for Debbie. And we were all tippy-toeing around saying, well, you didn't know, and you have to do some learning. You you didn't learn this. And so we're all having that part side of the conversation. And what I loved about Debbie was she said, enough. It's enough of telling people to say that you don't know. You know, we all know that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And so what are you doing about it? Yeah. What is that action that you're taking to learn? And it could be something as simple like watching a film. You know, if on Saturday nights what you like to do is watch a film with your family, then, then choose one that maybe has Indigenous content in it. Or, or, or whoever, wherever you live, who are the people around you? Is there something that, that you can connect with if there's a community event and to, to show up and support? I think that one of the books I, I just finished reading was the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu's mm-hmm. The Book of Joy. I loved this book. There was so much that was part of it that resonated from the traditional teachings that I've received over the years from Indigenous elders. The same thing. They kept talking about the same things, about how do we have joy? How do we live good lives? And and what I'm really trying to work on is doing the work that I do with compassion and loving kindness. And so imagine if all of us did in education. We're all doing our work every day in compassion and loving kindness. What a difference that would make. Because that includes for ourselves, too. Mm-hmm. 
you know, making sure that we are compassionate for ourselves and that we are, are kind to ourselves. Because I, I don't know how you could be saying that you're, you are compassionate and that you are making that a part of your practice on a daily basis and not feel compelled to learn historical truths of this land. You can't be compassionate if you don't, if you're not willing to look at the genocide that has been, and that some say, argue is still happening for Indigenous peoples in this, in this country. Just look what's happening and dividing our country right now over, over a pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so I think that if, if people are trying to do this, be compassionate, being kind, it's going to compel you to, to do some learning. And then once you learn, you're going to be upset and you're going to want to take action, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's a, a realization that we all have a responsibility to, to be educated and that we all benefit if we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the actions will naturally follow once we learn and are willing to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, really grateful for you to share um, your time, especially given <laughs> how much you have going on. And um, again, sharing your wisdom and insights and advice. Really, really grateful. Chimigwech, uh, Kalinda. Yeah, Chimigwech, Christopher. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed listening to the second part of our conversation. Once again, a big thank you to Kalinda for her time and generosity. Kalinda is on Twitter at CLCLYNE. You can find her podcast, Anti-Racist Educator Reads, on Voice Ed Radio or wherever you listen. If you found this episode to be meaningful or impactful for you, then you can support it by spreading the word through social media emails in your staff room. Tell people to check it out. You can also subscribe and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts to help more people find it. You can also support this project on Patreon at patreon.com unschooled. Becoming a micro-patron will help us expand our capacities to tell more of these stories. Getting Unschooled's associate producer is Alexandra Tabler. Our wonderful theme music is by Gabriel Fortuna. I look forward to speaking to you next episode when I speak with high school teacher Rory Olwyn about his journey of staying healthy while finding his identity as a teacher and his passion for setting positive examples of male energy for his students. Mm